there's a giant marketing failure elephant in the room. Why is nobody able to project value? So the challenge for marketing is we have to grok the whole thing. We're not just running ad campaigns. They get to erroneous conclusions justified with data and getting them to reopen the issue is nearly impossible. From Orion X, this is The Marketing Podcast. Marketing has transformed in significant ways. More technology, more data, more social, more blending of arts and sciences, more integrated with every other function, and ultimately more critical to the organization. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett as they discuss news and happenings in the world of marketing, from the boardroom to customer programs. Hi, everybody. Marketing Podcast once more. This is Shaheen Khan with Doug Garnett. Doug, set us up. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing well. I am, as of today, fully vaxxed. So I'm proud of you. Nice job. Well, I want to set it up by tossing it back to you because you put out something really interesting recently that you went to a conference slash exhibit called Supercomputer 22. And now I used to go to these back in the late 80s, the early 90s with you. So I know about this show. But what stunned me was you said there were over 11,000 attendees. Is that right? That is right. Yeah. And if you recall from old times, it was a really small show, really an academic conference set up by the IEEE and ACM. It has an exhibit attached to it. But then over time, both of them have grown. I was kind of stunned because, you know, the narrative we're told is that, well, trade shows are dying. Nobody wants to be anywhere in person. Everyone wants to work from home. Stuff is all dead. 11,500 people getting together talking about high-performance computing. Yeah, that exactly. sounds pretty significant. And I would imagine that a fair number of our listeners don't actually know there is still a category of high-performance computing, which came out of supercomputers in the past where you and I met. Right on. This is one of the geekiest geek fests out there. <laughs> And to imagine that there are over 10,000 people that show up every year to discuss it is really quite impressive, but was just on a gentle, steady rise. Mm -hmm. So over the few decades, it had got to the peak before COVID was 13,500 attendees. That included a whole bunch of internationals. The following year, they went all virtual, so there was no physical attendees. And then the year after that, they went physical again, but there was still a lot of COVID considerations. So it was 3,500 people two years ago. And then this year, my expectation was that if they get close to 10,000, that's really victory. I expected 7,000 or something. But in fact, it was 11,500 people, of which something like 700 were virtual. And of the remaining, vast majority showed up. And this also was in the face of a whole bunch of internationals opting not to show up because they had to make up their minds in the middle of summer or even earlier than that, when there were still a lot of uncertainties. So it really showed to me that there was a big pent-up demand to be there in person. And you could feel the energy. It was indistinguishable from before COVID. And people love being there together and see each other in person again. I think it's excellent, especially for reminding us that being in person is so valuable. Oh, God, you know, we get this whole, let's do everything (laughs) digital, but... You know, there's nothing like being in person with people and being around people and picking stuff up accidentally and, you know, wandering into a trade show booth just to look around it and then leave that is just, you can't beat it. So good to hear that there's health in the uh, supercomputer trade show. Now, because of the nature of this show, I do expect that the metaverse version of this sooner or later is going to show up. 
Yep. <laughs> I would imagine. And, and as we know, it doesn't take a whole lot to fool the human brain into thinking that you're actually there when you're not. So that's there's that flip side. We may, in fact, just have the same sort of emotional presence, even though it is through a bunch of goggles, you know? That said, I will say that I would hope that that metaverse runs really quickly. So. <laughs> That's right. Right. So it was it was a good show and missed you, you know? You would enjoy swinging by again. So I'm going to pull you in one of these days. At some point, I'm going to come back to one. I was watching your, your put tweets going, God, I really would like to be there. But Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, do you want to take us off on it? Because we, we were talking about freelancers. And I think it's actually something we haven't talked about yet on the podcast, which is there's so many people within marketing and advertising and creative fields, but also marketing, consulting and the like that are fundamentally freelancers in the world. And we've run into some real challenges. Even my agency, because we were, you know, maximum 10 people through our life through 20 years, I always felt somewhat like we were freelance in a way. I think it's small agency, freelancer, all kind of in the same category in my mind. Yep, they are. Absolutely. Well, it comes out this morning through Adweek. Somebody has picked up the actual request for proposal from Keurig Dr. Pepper. I didn't know they were related. But anyway, Keurig Dr. Pepper, the RFP for a new PR agency. And the RFP mandates 360-day terms of payment. And it, of course, is taking over the advertising Twitter world as everybody ponders how this can, we have gotten to a point where freelancers are asked to give 360-day terms or small groups, small enough groups are asked for those kind of terms. And I thought it led us to an interesting discussion in the pre-show. Well, you know, in fact, in this case, even a large agency is asked to adhere to that. Mm -hmm. So really what's going on? Yeah. I mean, there was a time when you would pay freelancers differently just to make sure that they're not legally categorized as employees, right. especially mm -hmm. if the client was a really large company that had some kind of illegal exposure. What KDP, Keurig Dr. Pepper, mm -hmm. is doing is cash management. And cash management is another way of saying a forced discount on the suppliers. So now the suppliers have a choice of either accepting that forced discount mm -hmm. or marking up their prices to make up for that forced discount. What is interesting to me is whether or not those who submit a proposal do that or not. Mm -hmm. And if they're accepting that forced discount, well, why are they doing that? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I mean, first of all, in the ad business or, you know, like I feel similar to those agencies because I spent a lot of time doing agency work. And reality is that there's this always this pressure to scramble and get stuff and that somehow you kind of feel like you're better off to have something rather than nothing. Unfortunately, that's not true or unfortunately, that's not true. And I know for freelancers, I found there was tremendous power from saying no, that when you're the one that's willing to say, you know, Dr. Pepper or Keurig, we would love to work with you and we have really good ideas and we could get you where you need to go, but we will not work with 360 day payment terms and we will not finance those through your internal finance agency, which is in the RFP, they offer to uh, do their own financing of it, which is kind of crazy. Behind this, though, and you know, I think it'd be worth coming back to this, say no, but behind this, I do want to make clear, I believe what's happening here is that Keurig is simply passing along the terms that retailers give them. So Keurig goes out and they sell a big bucket of stuff to their customers and their customers, big retails, Kroger, Walmart, Target, say, great, we have 160 day payment terms. And I've been in vendor meetings with retailers where the retailer informs the vendor that that's the way it's going to work. 
and that's just just it. Yeah, I think you you may be right. So they're themselves the mm-hmm. target of that forced discount by somebody else. So now, given that we're all talking about marketing here, there's a giant marketing failure elephant in the room. Why is nobody able to project value? Mm-hmm. Isn't that what marketing is at least partially, if not all about? Why is it that you feel helpless but to accept a forced discount? I think you're absolutely right. I guess, you know, I've noted for myself and never really talked about that it's getting harder and harder to convince a CEO, for example, that the risk of maybe advertising, that informing your audience about something important can be really powerful for the company. In other words, the CEOs sometimes fail to believe in the value that comes out of good marketing where good message and communication part of marketing. So in this case, you're right. There's an underlying message here, which is we need a PR agency, but they really aren't that important to us. Right. Now, somebody had said in the article that I was reading, they were saying that if you don't accept it, there's somebody else is going to accept it hmm. because everybody would do a lot to get that logo on their website. And I'm saying, well, but if that logo doesn't represent quality of work, If that logo represents your willingness to discount, Mm -hmm. do you still really want it? Yeah. And that's where as freelancers, you have to be careful. I mean, I did some work where I closed a deal with Reebok. And as I was working on closing the deal for this other company with Reebok, I found out that Reebok's reputation was being a really bad company to work for if you're an ad agency. And, you know, fortunately, our business with them wasn't that difficult, but it was only one job. And it's interesting. They had a reputation in the advertising business as being people you didn't want to work with. That's what Keurig Dr. Pepper risks here, especially with all the press that they're getting from it. Absolutely. Yes. Why would you go work with them? I wouldn't. And I think we were confronted with this question because of retailer terms. And that was always what I was given as a reason. And we said no in almost every case. There was one 90-day terms we accepted under the conditions that we could start our billing really early. And, you know, so if we bill 90 days early, then we're just where we should be. And it's really Mickey Mouse. What it does for me, you know, owning and running an agency is I feel like this client's Mickey Mouse. That's exactly what I was thinking too. If you're training everybody who's working with you to raise their prices, to make up for the cost that you're imposing and demand that they invoice you early, So it makes up for that time. And many a time, by the way, the people you're working with inside the company are on your side Mm -hmm. and they will tell you, go ahead and invoice anyway, or go ahead and jack up the price anyway, because they want you to be whole. So then suddenly the finance department, the supply chain department, the supplier management department really isn't getting what they want. They think they might. They might have data that tells them they're getting what they want, but they're not really getting what they want. So then what are you doing? That's really interesting. I once had to participate in a reverse bid auction on a campaign. Now, the weird thing is though the purchasing agent, you know, afterwards was like, wow, we thought there'd be more action because they opened it up. We knew there were two of us that were going to bid on it. They opened it up. The first guy's bid, we bid $2 less. It was like a $3 million deal. And I think they built, <laughs> bid uh, 2999999 <laughs> and we bid 2999997. I don't know what it was, but, but in the purchase agency is like, I don't understand why wasn't there more action? The truth is we had a whole set of bids lined up. We would have known how to deal with it, but they all just reduced how much we spent on media out of that because we can just say, well, you know, instead of spending 1.5 or, you know, $2 million on media, we're going to spend 1.9 million. No, we're going to spend 1.8 million. We had it. So it doesn't make any sense to reverse that. It just was crazy. 
Yeah. But it does take that kind of discipline. Yeah. And it does require that as an agency, you're not desperate for business. Mm-hmm. But then if you really are desperate for business, well, then guess what? Discounting is something you may have to do. And that's probably because you did not market quite well for yourself. Yeah. Well, and I will say there was one other type of business that we did take that I liked, which is we would sometimes take not well-paying small jobs to keep moving. Like if we had a slack time, it was good to be doing things. And so we'd take things that didn't make us any money, but it was worth it for the activity and the action. And I I, I don't ever regret that, but we made right. sure we were small. I mean, we would never take a Keurig Dr. Pepper under those. Right, things. right, right. Yeah. No, I agree with that. I think if it's a small project, if it is not a really heavy service level agreement around it, yeah. If mm-hmm. you're doing it for a client who is not too, you know, overbearing on these things, and if it the marginal cost is low, then yeah, absolutely. It's a gap filler and that's that's not a bad thing. Hey, should we return to our discussion of CMOs? Yes. I'm thinking about doing that because you know, you and I have talked quite a bit about CMOs and especially the turnover problem in the C suite with the marketing officer. It's a big deal. Yeah. The joke about CIO, CMOs, all these other CXOs who don't last long is that they are radioactive material with a half life of nine months so you give it 18 months 27 months and like 90 percent of them are gone yeah (laughs) i will admit that in our conversations i've kind of been willing to say you know the problem is the company because companies don't understand marketing which is true um, a lot of times and you know so forth and so on on the other hand you said something to me in pre-show that i think i also really agree with so we were talking about this what do you see in this issue yeah i was saying that well you know the way the way it came up was that you know i'm trying to say this in a nice way but my observation is that sometimes it's because the marketing people aren't as good as they need to be mm-hmm. and if you're dealing with a business that is running And if you don't understand the business and if you don't understand how the revenue comes in, if you don't quite understand the complexity of the sales process and the competitive situation and the landscape and industry trends and how finance allocates budgets and how HR hires people and how manufacturing does all of these things. Now, you know, my perspective is B2B where that complexity is a lot more palpable then it's a really tall order. So I've been, in a nice way, I've been saying that marketing is a really hard job. Mm -hmm. But that's the positive spin. The negative spin is that if you're a business and you hired CMO and then another CMO and then another CMO, and then none of them seem to be really grokking the business, Mm -hmm. then you get trained to not expect much from Mm -hmm. your CMO. And that because, you know, the previous three did not earn the respect, they did not earn the right to have a seat at the table with Mm -hmm. a bunch of power. And then those who do actually do. So that's the nuance. That's the flip side of that equation. Well, and I thought, I think it's important to catch that last bit of what you said, which is, in fact, those who are really good tend to stay because they grok it, they get it. And as we were talking, I was reminded of that Peter Drucker quote, which is marketing is not only much broader than selling, it encompasses the entire business. And what it does is these days, we're not training a lot of the people who go into marketing around the idea that marketing encompasses the entire business. So the challenge for marketing is we have to grok the whole thing. We're not just running ad campaigns. What companies need from a chief marketing officer is to be able to turn to him and say, okay, how are we going to make sure we have business in five years and have a CMO who might even say, 
I don't know right now because I'm not seeing the, the levers, if you will, to pull to make that happen yet. But here's what we're doing to try to figure it out. And then you're in a business discussion. I was reminded of a friend who turned to me at one point and said, you know, the reason you don't really talk with a lot of other local agency people, he says, is you're a business guy who happens yeah. to own an agency. And everything we did, I approached as a businessman, which is, wait a minute, how does this make sense for the client? How does it make sense for us? How does this work? What builds their business? I hear stories from art school of classes where the professor comes in and says, okay, you need to rebrand this restaurant. So rebrand this restaurant. And now my son was the one that was there. And he says, why? You know, what are we trying to achieve? And the design professor will say, well, that doesn't matter. Just rebrand it. Well, that <laughs> is not rebranding. You know, That's that is tweaking logos. That's playing with the art. And I think that we have a play with the art problem in a sense throughout marketing, you know, play with the social media feed. Let's go throw some social media out there and see what happens. Instead of ever getting to a point of saying, I know that if we do this, we are building business. I think that's absolutely the right advice to all marketing is that please understand that at the end, this is all about business. Mm -hmm. And the closer you are to being able to understand and run that business, the better marketing you're going to mm -hmm. be able to do. Now, Peter Drucker's quote is obviously very good. And also there's the Regis McKenna article mm -hmm. that I keep going back to in Harvard Business Review something like 30 years ago that said marketing is everything. Now, if you're a marketing guy, you can say marketing is everything and conclude that that means whatever you do is everything. But the real meaning is that you better learn everything. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a really tall order yeah. to learn everything because marketing is everything. And therefore it demands that you know everything. Do you know about export licensing? Do you yeah. know about how geopolitics impacts your supply chain? Do you know how future of work is impacting your workforce? Do you mm -hmm. know how AI is going to change your products? If you don't know all of these things, then it's really hard to do marketing when that topic is necessary. So my view is that CMO, the CMO role is as close to the CEO role as you get in terms of having an expansive overview of the entire business. Mm -hmm. with a focus on accelerating the sales cycle, positioning mm -hmm. you for competitive advantage, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a hard job. And if you strive to be good at all of that, whoa, you're going to have a lot of fun because you are great. And also it's kind of never ending. <laughs> yeah. I think this discussion is the one we're missing in the industry. So we can complain about how fast CMOs turn over. But underneath it all, we've got to ask, why don't we find companies getting CMOs that are up to marketing being everything? Why aren't they around and why aren't companies hiring them? And I think it seems like some of those responsibilities on both sides of that, but it's somehow marketing has to re-correct itself you know, re-energize or rebrand itself, if you will. Absolutely. Where the responsibility is with the business is to not recognize mm -hmm. that what they should get is a CMO that can do all of that work. And therefore, they should go recruit for that role. And that role is not going to be cheap. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be, I'm going to get 55 different candidates and they're all the same. No, it's going to be a really hard position to fill. Yeah. And I would add one other thought to that, which is you also have to not seek somebody who has the magic answer because that doesn't exist in marketing. 
You need somebody right. to come into the company, look at what's around them, and then decide what's smart. Magic answers the consultants might give you, and I don't, I mean, yourself, of course, except, but you know, there's a, <laughs> lot of, a lot of like, you know, McKinsey coming in with, well, it's the magic four step method, and that ain't going to do it. You've got to have people come in and grok what's going on around you. Well, if you have any sense of ownership of the business, you naturally would look at it in a very full way. And then you really could go with a consultant who has this magic trick as a portfolio of a dozen other magic tricks Mm -hmm. that you will then synthesize into something, right? Rather than end all be all. So yeah, definitely. Should we uh, shift to data? Data, we must talk about data in every episode, yes. I, it really, it's a requirement. It's becoming an obligation. In this, uh, Unfortunately well, so, yes. Unfortunately, <laughs> it is because people are bombarded by things around data. So I was fascinated by a quote I ran across from a guy named Ted Porter from 1995. And the quote is that the appeal of numbers is especially compelling bureaucratic officials. A decision made by numbers has at least the appearance of being fair and impersonal. Quantification is a way of making decisions without seeming to decide. Yeah, the relevant quote for me has been how opinions turn into facts when you (laughs) numericalize them. (laughs) I'm going to take this one where I took my students last night, which is NPS, the Net Promoter Score. It's entirely wrong. But what I find, and now my students, a lot of them have worked at retail. And so I tend to start off with, in your retail jobs, If you get anything less than a nine from a customer, are you punished? And every one of them does. And so you have to go back and say, well, where did this come from? Well, the NPS idea was that nines and tens are good. Sevens and eights are ignored. And anything six and below is bad. And you look at that and you think, this makes no sense in the real world. But on the other hand, it does give a bureaucratic official the appearance of being fair. Well, anybody who gets eight or below is they're all asked about it and what happened and why did that happen? I mean, yeah, so it yeah. appears fair and impartial when in fact, can I be blunt? It's stupid. Yeah. It doesn't relate <laughs> to reality, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, the biggest problem with data is how to interpret it. Well, actually, no, let me be, let me step back. The biggest problem with data is the four pieces that, that I've been saying for a very long time, which is, is the data relevant? A. B, is it correct? Is it valid? Did you measure the right thing? Number three, is it complete? Is there just, you know, are you looking at a fraction of the chess set or the whole set? And what is all going together? Then that's the analogy. If you're looking at a quarter of the chess set and you're trying to figure out what the rules of the games are, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's really, really very difficult, right? And then number four, when it is possible, is the data reproducible, right? Now, there's a lot more complexity that shows up when the meaning of items change, when you start collecting data that you didn't collect before, and suddenly you don't really have the time series to have trust in data. So all of those are true. But once you have all of that, now you have to actually interpret the data and come up with a narrative that explains the data. And even then you could go wrong by just interpreting stuff wrong, which is really the difference between a novice and an experienced person, is how to interpret the data properly. And so that's a really big problem, the narrative piece of it. And then the other is the user interface of data. So if you have a daily report that presents the data just so, Mm -hmm. you get used to that user interface. And that user interface, like all other user interface, becomes sticky. And, you know, sticky means you're stuck. (laughs) 
<laughs> sticky is sticky bad in those, but especially with data, because you have to be open to rediscovery and interpreting different. And I mean, I know executives want to have these nice, clean reports that tell them everything they need to know so they can to do what they need to do. And I understand that. I mean, I've been an executive. I know what it's about, except that that's also wrong. That leads to bad decisions. That leads to ignoring things that are important. You know, how often does the important problem in the company really show up on your dashboard? You know, sometimes, not always. Well, you know, when the dashboard is new, you are probably solving a problem. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. you now have provided some data that everybody wanted. And over a few iterations, you settle into a dashboard that gives you what you didn't have that you wanted that you now get. So now you have to continuously check whether the data is the right data. Mm-hmm. And then, as I was saying, you know, once you get used to that kind of a presentation, it becomes really difficult to upgrade the dashboard. Mm-hmm. Imagine your car now has this new dial. Yeah, you know, we're not giving you speed. We're just going to give you RPM. And we want you to drive safely and within the laws with RPM. You're not used to looking at that, so it takes you a while. So the stickiness of the user interface, the visual representation of data, is this revelation. I thought what you said earlier that I really liked was the idea that you can have all the right data and still build the wrong narrative. And I think that's what people don't necessarily give a lot of credibility to, is that you can have everything you need and still be building the wrong narrative around it. And because the narrative is an interpretation According to our Ted Porter quote, it could be done for bureaucratic reasons because you've already decided what you want to do and you want to just show it. In fact, a good place to notice that is in politics, where everybody looks at the same data and you come up with diametrically opposed narratives around it Mm -hmm. because you've got an agenda, you've got a bias, you've got a value system. Mm-hmm. And that happens in business all the time, whether it's wittingly or unwittingly, besides the point, there's bias in interpretation, not just in the data. I have always found that sometimes the mere existence of data is a problem, right? Just because it's there is a problem. If the data wasn't there, there are times when we'd be going, we don't really know. So let's put our heads together and really try to think this through. Whereas sometimes when there's the data, people jump to their own. They were able to justify their political opinions and beat people over the head with it. Yeah, that's really hard because we all agree that good data is a really important piece of the puzzle. You kind of need that. And if you have data, you want to take advantage of it. But I've also sat in meetings where for two or three hours, a whole bunch of high paying execs were staring at just invalid, incorrect, irrelevant, irreproducible Mm -hmm. data. It's because it's intoxicating. And before you know it, you start having meanings and these narratives form and conclusions get formed. Whereas the right thing would have to like not have the meeting to begin with. (laughs) Say, come back when you have good data. Well, and I think it makes it harder because in that path, let's take it the final step, which is so conclusions get formed, they're almost impossible to change. If they're based, they if are. That's right. They're based on data. Now, if they're if people believe, well, we came to we, this was a judgment call, so this is our judgment call. You can challenge those much better than people who say, well, we looked at all the data and this is the right answer. I've been finding that in more and more areas that people come to that conclusion, they get to erroneous conclusions justified with data, and getting them to reopen the issue is nearly impossible. Yeah. All right. Maybe that's the note on which we want to conclude this one. Okay. Well, actually, can we end with the final positive note of, you know what? CMO job is really fun. And if you people embrace it and embrace it fully, 
they can have a great time there. So let's not take all the CMO problems as meaning nobody should be a CMO. Oh, I think it's the best job on the planet. Yeah. And partly because it is hard, because you will always be learning and adding value in ways that are just really fun. Yeah, so for sure. All right, way more positive note. So on that, on that very encouraging and positive note, yeah, let's really. conclude this episode. Thank you, Doug. Thank you, everybody, right. for listening. Thank you, Shaheen. All right, take care all and do the right thing as a marketing person, including like, share, etc. Take care. That's it for this episode of The Marketing Podcast. Every episode is posted on orionx.net and shared on social media. Use the comments section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Marketing Podcast is a production of Orion X. Thank you for listening.